2: if you can't see it, you don't believe it. And that's why I feel representation across all facets of life is so important. And I think to the advertising industry is really where your first views of society are formed. So if you don't see yourself reflected in that society, you question all the time do I really belong here? Mm.
1: Hello and welcome to this in conversation episode of Shameless with the incredible Jennifer Attilamil. Jennifer is an international model and writer who advocates for greater representation of racial and body diversity in the media, and who has very recently landed one of the biggest jobs of her career, a campaign with Victoria's Secret. In this chat, we cover everything from what she loves about the modelling industry to why she feels like every job she books is, in her own words, a win for not just size diversity, but a win for the increase in racial and body diversity in advertising too. Jennifer is candid about the burnout that comes with being an activist in 2020 and how she feels about slacktivism online more than three months after the death of George Floyd made headlines across the world. We loved this chat. Jennifer is such a delight and such a force. We cannot
0: wait for you to hear all she has to say. Here's Jennifer. Jennifer Attilamil, welcome to Shameless in Conversation. We are so excited to have you.
2: Thank you so much. I'm really excited to I guess be here is not the right word I'm not like in <laughs> person, but I'm I'm grateful to be able to speak on the podcast.
1: Jennifer, we're starting by asking everybody how they are because it is one of the strangest times any of us can remember. So how are you doing?
2: I would be lying if I said I was okay. <laughs> Full transparency, I am experiencing a roller coaster of emotions. Some days I'm great. Some days I'm crying in bed. You know, I just take every day as it comes.
0: What are you reading, watching and listening to? It's a time when we're all kind of stuck in our homes or we are dealing with a lot in 2020. And a lot of people kind of want to channel their energy into TV or books or podcasts. What are you filling your days with when you have a day off?
2: Uh, So I am watching a lot of of TV, a lot of mindless TV a Mm. lot of the time. I really got into 90 Day Fiance. (laughs)
0: Yes,
2: such a good show. (laughs) But I also, I've just started watching Lovecraft County on HBO. That's really good. What's the other one with Michaela Cole?
1: I May Destroy Um, You.
2: That one, yeah. I watched that Mm. one recently and like really liked that. And then reading, I've been reading a lot, a lot of like anti-racist materials, like on those book lists as well. But I've also been trying to read some other things that get me distracted from, you know, the the kind of sad world that we're currently living in. So yeah. I think yeah. the last book I read was called Homecoming by Yaa Gyasi. And that is I highly recommend that book I think everyone should read it
1: when you say you know there are days where you're kind of at the moment it's a bit of a roller coaster of emotions and there are some days where you are much much lower than others what do you do do you have a process of trying to kind of like pull yourself up are there things you go to
2: I think one of my biggest things is I'm learning that I used to distract myself a lot with work when I wasn't necessarily feeling 100% so especially when I didn't have any work to occupy myself with, I, I was really struggling. And I guess one of the things that I've learned in therapy is just to really honor the emotions and like allow myself to cry and allow myself to feel and not feel bad that I'm not okay. I think there's so much pressure that we put on ourselves to kind of keep it all together. Even if we acknowledge that we're not okay, I think we still want to have it together. And I think that's a societal thing, you know, we've been conditioned into just thinking we have to have it all and do it all and, and be okay all the time. And, and yeah, for me, I'm really learning that it's just okay to cry to and, and not even, yeah. And not even to try and like do something
0: to help myself, just let myself cry. Yeah. yeah. Mm. It's certainly something that I think I've tried to embrace a lot as I've grown older embracing my own inherent sensitivity I feel like I've always been a sensitive person were you a sensitive child and do you feel like the person you were as a child changed much to who you are as an adult now I definitely think I have always been a
2: sensitive person Mm -hmm. I remember my parents always saying that I was you know too dramatic growing up and (laughs) I do (laughs) I I feel that that shaped me into who I am today you know trauma but I, I definitely have always been very intuitive and highly, highly emotional, kind of take on everyone else's emotions as well. Take on the world's emotions, want to change the world, really empathetic. So it's hard sometimes, but, you know, I'm, I'm getting there, working on yeah. it.
1: <laughs> what were you like? I mean, I know you just said you've always been a very sensitive soul, but what was your childhood like?
2: I guess it was good. I guess growing up, I grew up in Canberra and then moved to Melbourne. I kind of did both Canberra and Melbourne, I moved to Melbourne when I was about seven. And then I guess my, my childhood was pretty much like anyone else's, you know, school, dance classes, athletics. I did a lot of performing arts when I was a kid. So that was kind of my, I guess my big thing that everyone is kind of surprised that I haven't ended up in a more. I'm still doing something creative, but I think I I just really veered away from Doing music because I was trying to put like monetary value on on success. Mm-hmm. Um, I think I didn't think I could be successful, so that that's partly like I think that's my self sabotage. I just mm-hmm. I gave up rather than keeping on trying. But you know, I'm it's part of my life again now, and you know I've realized that if it doesn't bring you monetary value it can bring you like spiritual value. And if you're happy, it doesn't really matter,
0: you know. How did you arrive at the decision to give it away? Like what was the thought process leading up to that? Because, I mean, I obviously don't know, but what I can glean from you talking about it is it sounds like it took up a huge part of your life for a while.
2: Yeah, so I uh, was seeing a psychologist <laughs> probably around 15 or 16, and he said that only a small select few um, like a, amount of people ever make it to the top. Success is like a pyramid. A few rise to the top, and and the majority don't. You're probably not one of them, so you better. You might as well give up now. A psychologist said this. Yeah. Oh my god. (laughs) Wow. And and I think that stuck with me. And then when I got you know my first rejection, I was like, oh yeah, he's right, whatever. And then I got my second rejection, and like so I applied for all of the you know VCA, I applied for Whopper, I applied for NIDA. You know, I was really going down the musical theater route. And I just got, yeah, rejection after rejection. They said, you know, you need more life experience. And I was like, Ugh, it's the end of my life as I know it, whatever, like career over. I'll just do what my mum and dad did and, and and get into like policy and, and try and work for the government. <laughs> it's really sad.
1: How much do you resent that psychologist looking back now and telling that story?
2: A lot. <laughs> <sighs> I, I just think that's such bad advice to give someone because I think it shouldn't matter whether or not you're successful, if it brings you joy, like I was saying before, if it brings you joy, you should be doing it regardless. And I think as I get older, I'm learning that money isn't the be-all and end-all. Obviously, money buys you experiences, but it doesn't It doesn't buy happiness. And, mm. you know, feeding your soul is the most important thing. And and I feel, feel like for so long I wasn't allowing any kind of music in, in my life and I was just not –
0: happy. I mean, it's so funny that we're having this discussion about like not reaching success in one way, but you are an incredibly successful person despite that psychologist shitty advice to you. You hold a double master's in international relations and in journalism. And this is before we even touch on what your current career actually looks like today. Why did you want to go into that? I don't know.
2: (laughs) (laughs) I, I think no, it was once I finished my undergraduate degree, I couldn't find a job. And I just thought having a master's degree would help me it and I don't know if it would have helped me because I literally got my like my modeling contract at the same time as I got the offer to to start this degree. And I never really gave that academic side of, mm. of things a chance to kind of grow. but in my undergraduate degree I, I was really, interested in human rights. And I've always, I feel like I've always had a way with words. I've always wanted to tell stories. So I I guess, yeah, I combined my want to learn more about human rights and just, I guess, the injustices in the world and then try and share those stories. So I actually focused on women's rights. I I volunteered, not volunteered, but interned at like a Women's Peace and Security Institute in Melbourne. And I feel like that was the direction that I wanted to go down, but then I became a model instead. So (laughs) it's a really different career path to what I studied. And I'm I'm kind of yeah, asking myself every every tax return when I pay my hex debt, I'm like, why?
0: (laughs) Why? (laughs) (laughs) Complete gear change. But something I have always found interesting from like the youngest of ages to right now is how people are scouted to become models. It feels like this very um, I don't know, strange and ambiguous (laughs) industry where like if you're not inside it, you really don't know how it functions. How were you discovered, for lack of a better term?
2: Yeah, so I have a really interesting story of like how I got into modelling because it was when I was 15, I wanted to be a model and I was lining up for Australia's Next Top Model. I don't know what season it was, but in the line this kind of development agency approached me and offered me, I guess I at the time thought it was like a contract, but it was just to pay to learn how to model, which you should never do. Just putting it out there. That's, that's not how you get into modeling. You shouldn't ever have to pay, but I did it anyway. <laughs> <laughs> um, and at the end of that, I was, I guess I was approached to be signed by two agencies in Melbourne. And at the time when I was 15, I was severely underweight. I had problems with my eating disordered eating and stuff, and just not in a very good headspace. And these two agencies wanted me to lose even more weight before they signed me. And I think at that stage I was probably like a, a six to eight in in dress size. And I'm I'm really tall. It just wasn't it wasn't natural for my body. And I don't think I could have actually got smaller. And so because I was underage, my mom had to intervene and, and kind of say, well, no, she's not going to sign that contract. And, you know, me being the drama drama queen that I was, I was like, oh, my God, mom, you're ruining my life. Like, how dare mm-hmm. you? But then, you know, I now look at it and I was able to go to university and, and really start on a, a journey of self-love. And it wasn't until I think my second year of university that a friend of mine said, you know, there is such thing as like curve modeling. You should give it a shot. And then, yeah, I sent my photos in to my now agency and literally within five minutes, I got a contract back straight away saying like, we want you. And I was Mm -hmm. like, oh my God, it's happening. And then from there, it's just, it's been a snowball. It's just gotten bigger and bigger and bigger. And I'm, you know, I'm so grateful.
1: Talk to us about that journey that you say from, you know, being told that you need to lose weight from being a six, size six to eight to, as you say, getting to a point where you really do love your body. Was it being removed from the modeling industry you think that helped that actually come to be?
2: No, actually, I think I've always equated like being thin to being successful and being popular and being liked by people mm. and I think too like growing up in Australia like I I never ever saw anyone that looked like me. I never even within my own family, like my dad's side of the family don't live in Australia, so I never had you know, that side of my genetics to kind of look at for body image. And it wasn't until I went to visit my dad's side of the family in Reunion when I was about 23 or 24 and something inside of me just clicked. And I was like, oh my gosh, that's how I'm supposed to look like, you know, and I saw all these beautiful, confident, curvy women. And I was like, "Uh uh-huh, it makes sense now. And I think that then stemmed spawn, sorry like a new a new journey of like okay so this is what I'm supposed to look like and then thanks to Instagram I started following like other curve models and other kind of body positive accounts and I really got to a point of realizing that I actually can't be thinner like I could but it would it's really unhealthy for me to, me to be thinner and so like every woman I feel like we fluctuate you know over time that always you know external factors that cause weight gain weight loss whatever but I think you know where I am right now is probably the most confident and just comfortable I am in my body. And it's taken a really long time to get there. And I'm not 100% confident all the time. And I think that's really important to put out there that, you know, I I, I am comfortable now, but I still have bad body
0: days. We all do. It's just mm. product of conditioning. <laughs> yeah. Jennifer, one quote we absolutely adore of yours is this one. Each of these jobs I tick off is a win for not just size diversity, but a win for the increase in racial and body diversity in advertising. One thing that brings me joy on the job is that I know out there there's a young girl growing up seeing someone that looks like her and feels represented. And that's a win for me. Can you talk to that quote a little bit for us? Because when we read that, we were just blown away by how powerful it is.
2: Yeah, I truly believe that if you can't see it, you don't believe it. And it, it's in everything and that's why I feel representation across all facets of life is so important. And I think to the advertising industry is really where your first views of society are formed. So if you don't see yourself reflected in that society, you question all the time, do I really belong here? And then coupled with in Australia, I was always asked where I was from, but I was from Australia. And, you know, I didn't see anyone that looked like me in in advertising. I didn't see anyone that looked like me on TV. I didn't see anyone that looked like me in any of the jobs that I aspired to do. And I never thought I could do it. So, you know, it's always going to take like one person to be that, you know, token almost. And that's why you do kind of need tokenism at times. But I think for me, I, I find that we haven't moved past tokenism, but I am willing to be that person because it does mean that there are people growing up with that role model that they never had that I didn't have growing up and you know on the days as well when I feel insecure about my body and I've still got to work and I kind of question oh should I do this should I change this or that I then think no because there will be someone out there that sees your body as their body and you're finally paving that way for your kind of body to be normalized. And so it's this weird battle because there isn't anyone that came before me. I feel almost like this immense pressure, but I also feel so empowered to be be that person that I didn't have when I was growing up. You know, I want to be the girl that I didn't have.
1: One thing that you just touched on there was this idea of like, yes, most of, you know, the advertising at the moment is tokenistic, but I'm willing to be that person. What is the burden of tokenism like Of being the one that feels like, you know, you have to go first?
2: It's, it's honestly really hard. And I think what has really surfaced in the past couple of months is the conversation of, well, well, what now? And I've always seen my inclusion as, you know, that step to the next more diverse casting or the more diverse, yeah, advertising campaign. And it's always something that every time I do get booked, it's it's kind of like a begrudging feeling that, well, you know, I know I'm the token, but I'm willing to do this because without me as the token, there is no diversity. So you kind of take it, but at the same time too, yeah, it's a a really tough spot, but without the token, there is no diversity. So there has to be the token to get Mm. diversity. It's like the chicken and the egg, I feel, in a little way, like, but we've just not progressed further than the token.
0: I feel like listening to you talk about it now though it would feel dehumanizing to a certain extent, right?
2: Yeah, I feel I feel a bit used, especially come that whole blackout Tuesday movement where everyone, you know, pledged to do better, standing in solidarity, blah blah blah, and it's not changed. I've been really fortunate enough like the contracts that I've had in Australia, I've actually sat in with the the companies and I've I've had conversations internally to make sure that you know I and and like these companies and, and me still align with our values and and I've been really lucky in and I'm able to say that they do. But I just hope that what's coming from this movement now is permanent long lasting change and it isn't just this, mm. you know, 15 seconds of fame kind of mentality of we're just going to do it for a little bit, not actually address the root causes of why we're pushing for more diversity just so that brands can make money
0: because Mm. I think
2: you know ultimately we need more diversity from an advertising perspective but unless we address the issues behind why there isn't diversity we're not actually going to move forward as a society so it, it is it's really hard and like I I would love to be able to be turning down jobs and and really like saying no you're not being diverse I'm not working with you but at the same time too I'm like I've got to pay my bills yeah. So where do I then draw the line of, of that, that tokenistic inclusion and, and fighting for, for real long-lasting change and being able to put a roof over my head so it's like it's, it's hard
1: coming up after the break slacktivism in 2020 and how Jennifer hopes to enact change first a word from today's sponsor You've done a lot of work in New York and London. You're living in New York at the moment. And I want to know, do you think that you could have had the career that you're having now if you were based in Australia?
2: Absolutely not. Flat out no. And I'm hoping that one day I can come home and and have the recognition that I feel like I deserve. But I I really do think that even if you're not a person of colour, I think Australia has this real attitude of putting people on a pedestal if they've made it outside of Australia. You look at some of the famous actresses and and actors and stuff and it's like they can't have a career. Like Australia is small anyway. You know, we don't have the big budgets like the Hollywood films and stuff do, but you're not someone unless you've you've made it elsewhere. And I think it's the same with any profession. You know, you go over, do your stint in in a law firm in New York, you come back, you can get whatever job you want. You work at a high-flying PR firm in London, you come back, you can get a better job in Australia because you've made it elsewhere. I don't know why that is in Australia but I definitely think that if it wasn't for the success that I've had in yet London and New York I would not have had the same the same career but just because Mm. as well like Australia just isn't diverse enough and Mm. and we're still not really wanting to address the underlying causes of that diversity problem which is is racism and Australians don't think that they're racist and that's as simple as, as that. And, and it sucks. And I hate being that person. It's always, I, and I guess I'm kind of like self gaslighting myself, yeah. but like, I'm always that person. I feel that speaking up about it and I've constantly been told, no, 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 like, it's not that bad. It's not that bad. Don't, don't keep speaking up about it. And I'm, I'm, I'm over it because, mm. It, it has meant that I haven't been able to to have the same career. It's meant like so many other people haven't had the same opportunities and
0: it's it's time to change. It's so interesting, Jennifer, because as much as you feel like you're the only person speaking about it, like let us tell you we've had people from the UK and the US on this podcast and somehow we always have the same discussion. It's almost embarrassing how yeah. far behind Australia is compared yeah. to other countries, everyone who comes on this podcast who does work internationally says to us, Australia is so racist, it's like you guys are a decade behind where the US and the UK are right now. And it's like how are we still stuck here? How are we still stuck here in the point where it's so white? Like you look to traditional advertising, you look to billboards, you look to the people on our screen and there is almost no form of diversity. There are almost no people with disabilities on our television screens or on our, I guess, like magazines is very old school, but like the kind of Instagram grids of the popular brands, there's no body diversity, there is no like racial diversity, cultural diversity. Does it upset you to think that this is, I guess, your home country and this is where you probably want to come home to, but we're just so behind and we seem quite archaic with how we approach advertising still?
2: Yeah, in a nutshell, yeah. But I think when you look at Australia's history and you look at You know, you look at the very way Australia was founded and you look at colonisation, you look at the erasure of Indigenous people, you look at immigration policy, the white Australia policy, it's no surprise that our kind of structure is is so whitewashed because it is literally ingrained in all of the systems that white is better. And that's like what I think when you do address racism and you do try and talk about fixing systemic racism you have to look at white supremacy and everyone like I feel like everyone sees white supremacy as this horrendous extremist thing and it can be but it's also just the belief that one race is, is superior to the other and whether or not you like directly feel it and believe it it's just so ingrained in all of the systems in the education in the legal system you know and it just perpetuates subconsciously. I think we just, in Australia, we look at racism and, and you know, dismantling white supremacy as like a another country's problem. It can never happen in Australia. And it's been happening since the beginning of the country. Like,
0: mm.
2: and I think the failure to acknowledge that, I think, is where the biggest issue is. You know, it's still not, Acknowledged that there was a genocide of of the traditional landowners, like, and I think if if we kind of acknowledge that, how the hell are we going to fix racism in the country? So we just need a, I don't know, (laughs) complete overhaul of the system. But (laughs) Mm. I'm not inciting anything. I don't want to get arrested.
1: The, I mean, it's isn't it like ridiculous that even like a joke like that that you even have to crack? But the next question I want to ask you is kind of a tricky one and one I imagine you feel very conflicted about. But you did make a comment earlier this year around the time of like Blackout Tuesday and stuff like that, mm-hmm. that your, your following on Instagram in particular ballooned hugely in size. How did you feel about that?
2: It was weird cuz like I definitely I gained a lot of people and then I started losing a lot of people. <laughs> I think everyone's like, "Oh, I need to become more diverse and like I need to actually start following, you know, black people, indigenous people because I need to I need to kind of fix those biases." But then when I actually started talking about racism and dismantling the system and all of the things that were wrong with the system I actually had so many people trying to argue with me and it was so it was so emotionally exhausting because I was being white blamed too and people were then sending me anti-racism resources on how I could educate myself and become a better ally or something and I'm
0: doing oh it my common, god and I was
2: just like I am black. <laughs> I don't need you to tell me how to re-educate myself. Like I live this experience twenty-four-seven. Please go away.
0: are <laughs> yeah, nice like, fuck like off. please, please, Absolutely
2: yeah, fuck off. like leave me alone.
0: <laughs> oh my god, that would yeah. be incredibly confronting. How are you coping? It's I. What I imagine like a huge emotional an intellectual and spiritual energy that you have funneled into this year and that you have burned through this year? How are you coping right now? Look,
2: yeah, <laughs> I'm exhausted, but I know that I, I have to do this. And, you know, I had a conversation with my best friend the other day and she, I was, you know, in hysterics crying. I'd really kind of hit a limit of of how much I was kind of feeling and, and everything like that. I think I'd just gone to a protest. Jacob Blake had just been shot in the back seven times. And then Chadwick Boseman, the Black Panther, died. And it was a full moon. <laughs> and I was just like, I was so emotional. And my friend said, like, at what cost to your mental health are you going to you know continue this activism? Because you're doing so much and it's, it's admirable, but you've got to protect yourself as well. And I've just, I've been feeling really guilty about having fun because I know like how much is, is going on in the world. But I also need to remind myself that joy is resistance and joy is, is allowed. And, you know, it's, it's been, it's been hard, but yeah, it's something that I'm I'm prepared to keep fighting for because until we're all equal, like it's just not it's not fair. So, the thing that I'm learning to in in America is that I benefit from colorism and and I and I'm I recognize that privilege and I want to use that privilege to be able to speak in circles that darker black people don't get the opportunities to speak in. And my friend explained it to me that it's actually so powerful because I I can infiltrate both spaces kind of thing. And I've almost accepted that responsibility, but it's it's almost like this huge responsibility that I've, you know, another thing that I've just added to my plate and and I don't know, I've got stuff like spewing off the edge of my plate. It's just, it's overflowing (laughs) right now, but I just, I feel like I have to because people are listening to me and, and, I've got this voice and, you know, I want to use it. I don't want to just be sitting by and and allowing things to happen.
1: What is the cost of the activism and, you know, the cost on your mental health for kind of having to fight this every day and use your voice every single day?
2: I guess the cost is just being exhausted and and emotional. And at times, like, you know, I, I haven't been sleeping well. And, yeah, like it's just... There's a real heavy weight on my heart, and I try not to cry, but like all of the, the, the research that I've been doing, and like all of the anti racism stuff that I've been reading, it's so heartbreaking and it just makes me want to fight harder. And the thing that frustrates me the most is that if everyone that said that they were going to be doing the work, was actually doing the work people would be fuming because I'm mad I'm so angry and if like our allies really cared as much as they did to look woke enough to post a black square on Instagram I feel like we would have a little bit more progress than what we do like but no one has really like unless it affects you you don't really care and it's not that you don't care like oh a lot of people do care, but they they almost like don't know where to start. But like it's such a complex thing. But if you're doing the work and you're reading about it, you're you're frustrated, you're outraged because this treatment of Black people in America, treatment of Indigenous people in Australia, is absolutely abhorrent. And if you're not outraged, then you're not doing enough work, in my opinion. Like it just it it pisses me off so much that people are still, you know, out there partying and and and. You know, in the middle of a pandemic as well, like partying and pretending like nothing is going on, that black people aren't getting murdered disproportionately, not just by like the pandemic and poli- like the police brutality, but just the system is so unfair to black people and Indigenous people. And I, I just, yeah, I can't live in a world where I-, I haven't fought my hardest to try and make it equal for everyone. Mm-hmm.
0: I think one of the most disarming stats we've heard on Shameless was actually last month. We had Ray Johnston on. She's an Indigenous woman and she was talking to us about health care and maternal child health care for Indigenous women and how many women die because they're just not taken care of and doctors and midwives and nurses, even though it might not be something intentional, it's certainly subconscious where they are mistreating women, they're ignoring their health concerns and women and children are dying. I want to talk to you about your anger about this, because on top of all this, like on top of the emotional and intellectual labor you're doing to educate people and use your voice and speak out, there is the layer of the trope of being an angry black woman, which is so unfair on top of everything else. Do you feel like when this anger bubbles up and bubbles over that you need to kind of squash it down and you need to be, I don't know, like ladylike or placate the people around you or make the white people in the room feel as comfortable as possible.
2: Yeah I do and I remember when I first started modeling and I was very vocal about politics and just the injustices of everything in Australia and racism and that sort of thing, I was told to to just not talk about it because no one wanted to hire anyone that was too political and that's the thing that as as black women, you know, you get all the time. If you're too confrontational, it's too much for people to handle and you do get labeled, yeah, that angry black woman stereotype and 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 like I I did earlier I was kind of like say it in an articulate way that eases the blow kind of thing, but I'm just at the point now like I don't care. <laughs> and yeah, I I'm so frustrated and and yeah, I'll yell at people or cry I just kind of can't hold in those emotions anymore because it's it's just if people kind of see more people crying and being upset then they're kind of more empathetic as well too like I I don't know I shared a video on my Instagram like ages ago I feel like it was ages ago maybe two two or three months ago and I was crying and everyone was like oh my gosh we're so sorry blah 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 we didn't realize you felt like that and I was like okay well look this is like years and years of trauma that I've suppressed and didn't even realize that I was suppressing. And I've only just learned that I've been suppressing all of this trauma my whole whole life. So just bear with me for a second while I process it all. But I just think that, you know, if I didn't cry, no one would have really taken any note of what mm-hmm. I was saying. But it was, we almost have to get angry now. And we have to 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 show our anger and frustration and sadness at the treatment, because otherwise no one knows and no one really cares. Yeah, I think it's as simple as that. And and I hate and I'm doing it again, but I'm like I, I hate the fact that I'm saying that no one cares cuz I feel like a lot of people deep down they do care, but they don't know how to act. They don't know how to try and make things better. And quite frankly, I don't know either. But we need white people to be doing as much as black people are doing. Yeah, we need the white allies to be fighting the fight because we've been fighting the fight forever and no one's listening to us. So I think that's when it gets so frustrating that this is a huge civil rights movement, you know, and it's just for me watching Australia just not acknowledge it and not do more is heartbreaking because, yeah, we need to do more.
1: What would 15-year-old Jennifer say about the life that you've built and the causes that you stand up for? Would she be surprised?
2: I don't think she would be surprised, but she kind of would be because I was a very rebellious, just I, I was in a very different place at 15. So, you know, I am i won't go too much into it, but if 15-year-old me was to see me now, she'd be like, wow, it, it gets better kind of thing. So... Yeah, I I just think that I've I've always had a fire in my belly to to stand up for for the injustices in the world. So I think I've I've st- stayed true to to that version of me. But I also think I've I've I'm completely different and I've become like a better a better version. So yeah, I'm proud of myself and I'm sure she'd be proud of me too. Hmm.
0: Who do you picture when you show up and you use your voice and you put yourself out there for all this annoying feedback, particularly from white people who try to white explain to you or tell you to educate yourself on something that you will always know far better than they do? Who do you do it for? Like, who do you picture in your head that you are doing this for and putting yourself out there for? I
2: feel like in quarantine, I really thought about the legacy I want to leave behind. And I think I'm, I'm doing it for the future generations. I'm doing it for my kids. Mm and I like I don't know who I'm going to end up marrying but I want to know that whoever it is if I have black kids or if I have another you know they're always going to be black but you know if I marry a black man if I marry a white man whatever that my kids are going to have rights you know and that even even my 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 cousins that their kids are going to have equal opportunity and kids that I don't know are going to have equal opportunity. You know, I, I just think with any kind of activism or with any kind of wanting to make the world a better place, it's for the future generations because this kind of change isn't going to happen overnight. It's, it's long-lasting generational change and I want to make the, the earth a better place for, for the next generation or even the generation after.
0: How do you feel about the US election? It is coming up. I imagine it's an incredibly divisive space to live in. I imagine there's a lot going on over there. I struggle listening to it and I'm fucking so many thousands of kilometres away from where you are, completely immersed in this very political clusterfuck, I guess. How is it? How are you feeling? And are you nervous for, I, I guess, the potential that Donald Trump will be voted in again? on top of everything
2: that's happening this year, having a presidential election with such a shit show candidacy is, is, yeah, to say it's not worrying me is a lie (laughs) Mm. because it's the lesser of two evils. Both, both candidates are not good, but one is not Trump.
0: Yeah. Mm. That's
2: kind of, that's kind of what I have taken from the whole situation and it's frustrating because i can't vote and i would love to be able to vote cuz i live here but i can't but yeah it's it's i just can't believe having studied journalism i just can't believe the the lies mm. that are, are being told and how many people believe the lies mm. and that's i think the scary thing is that it's, I think I was reading this article, that it's a campaign of misinformation and it's like misinformation versus misinformation and what is actually the truth, I don't fucking know. But it's really scary because, honestly, I think that what is happening in America, it's always been happening. Like, I I know that for a fact, but the thing that Trump is allowing is for people to actually just act on their opinions and viewpoints and, and that's why you're seeing... A lot of supremacists kind of just acting in in broad daylight kind of thing. And that's always been an undercurrent in America. So I think it is kind of scary that, you know, should he be reelected, it will get a lot worse. I do think it's probably going to get worse before it gets better. But I do think it will get better because it, it just can't, it can't. Be allowed to to keep going on like this, like it's just it's not right, and yeah, I guess from studying international relations, I've been reading since he was elected that you know it's the perfect storm for someone like him to rise to power, and you know with the economy and the promise of jobs and and mm-hmm. almost inciting this nationalism. But it's like a nationalism with a racist undercurrent. It's it's really dangerous, and and yeah, it's it'll be interesting to see what what plays out. But I am hoping for the best. I don't want to be a complete Debbie Downer, <laughs> but
1: our I, fingers yeah. and toes and kind of everything that it can be crossed it crossed for for everyone over there. We have yeah. one last question, and I feel like you might have touched on this when you spoke about how you'd be considering your legacy, but we have to ask it because it's our last question every single time and it is, with all of this in mind, what is success to you?
2: Oh, that's really tough. I think success success to me has really changed since I went into lockdown because I, I was a product of capitalism before <laughs> I had a little epiphany and I thought success was job success, monetary success. And like, I put a lot of value on my success on like things and, and objects. But I think success is really knowing who you are, and who what like what you stand for. And just following that regardless of what that brings. So I know, like, for me that I, I'm following a path that lights a flame inside of me. And I know that that is what I'm supposed to do and and I know that that you know it's a different it's a difficult way to measure success but I think knowing that I'm I'm finally doing something that I I love and that is hopefully going to change the world even if it is change like five people's lives you know I that's all that matters to me
0: Jennifer thank you so much for joining us thank you for being so generous with your insights as well you are such a trailblazer and doing such incredible stuff and we are huge fans of yours and we are just so thankful and so grateful that you chose to spend the last 45 minutes with us
2: thank you so much
1: Thank you so much for listening to this In Conversation episode of Shameless with Jennifer Attilamil. For more from Jennifer, follow her on Instagram at Jennifer Attilamil. She has also recently launched her own podcast too. Just search Here If You Need in your favourite podcast app. If you enjoyed this episode, may we also recommend you listen to our In Conversation chats with model Kate Wasley and activist Jamila Jamil. I will pop the links to both of those chats in our show notes. As for us, well, if this is the first time you've ever listened to Shameless, we are an independent pop culture podcast. We put out episodes every Monday and Thursday and have a monthly book club episode too. If you'd like to keep up to date with us, please click the follow button on Spotify. You can also find us on Instagram at shamelesspodcast. Thank you so much, guys. We will be back in your ears on Monday.